Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey Vanguard, Pastor Kerry here. I hope you're staying safe and healthy as we continue to shelter in place or shelter at home during this statewide shutdown for the coronavirus pandemic. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to uh, stop the video, grab your Bible, something to write with, and go print off the uh, PDF notes handout on the sermon page of our website so you can follow along with me. Now, if you've already done that, let's go ahead and dive in and study God's Word this morning here. But let's start with a word of prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word that it contains so many powerful truths in it. Not only does it tell us more about who you are and who we are, it tells us how much you love us. It tells us about your character and how your character works to impact and influence our lives. Lord, would you please use this time over the next few minutes as we open up the scriptures. Would you change our thinking about you? Would you help us to understand who you are, not who we think you are or how we feel you are, so that we can do accurate theology about you? We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing a series I started a few weeks ago, and I'm just simply calling Biblical Thinking about the Coronavirus. Uh, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And as you turn there, let me just review a little bit of what we've learned in this series so far for some context. At the beginning of this series, I mentioned how fear has, I think it's the predominant emotion right now being felt all over the world. And that's because there's a lot of uncertainty right now about, about who's going to die, uh, who's going to keep their job, who's going to get their job back, how much money are we going to lose, we've got the, the recession going on all over the world. So all that stuff creates anxiety and fear in people, and understandably so. But thankfully, God's Word has solutions to our anxiety, and I'm calling these antidotes. And I'm doing so on purpose because... An antidote, as you know, is something that counteracts the effects of a poison. Well, anxiety, according to God's Word, is poisonous to our souls. It's something that God does not want us to have. It's something He doesn't want us to struggle with. And so, I've been calling these anxiety antidotes. Uh, the first one, you might remember, was submissive prayer from Philippians 4. The second one was contentment, also from Philippians 4. And if you missed those studies, I want to encourage you to check them out on our podcast or our website. I think they'll be very, very helpful and encouraging to you. Um, and now the third one today, number three, the third anxiety antidote, it comes from Romans chapter 8, from what is, what is arguably the most popular verse, or it'd probably be in the top five most popular verses in the entire Bible. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. And so, uh, I want to encourage you to turn there if you haven't already, and follow along with me as I read these two verses, which these two verses have been used by millions of saints throughout centuries of church history 
to encourage them during times of suffering and uncertainty. And so with that, let's read the text. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Okay, here's, here's the third, number three, anxiety antidote that you can write down in your outline. And it's simply this, trusting God's character. Trusting God's character. These two verses, Romans 8, 28 and 29, pull back the curtain on two very encouraging doctrines in the scriptures that have to do with God's character. Uh, and I think these are two doctrines that every believer should be familiar with. And so this is going to be letter A and then B on your outline. Uh, letter A is this, the first doctrine that every believer needs to be familiar with is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine of God's sovereignty. Notice in verse 28, and I'm, I'm going to dive deep in this verse because there's a lot in this verse to pull out that I think is going to encourage all of us. Notice he starts out, and we know, and we know. You might want to underline that in your Bible. We know. There's a small but important detail in the, these first three words, and that word particular, know, K-N-O-W, that I don't want us to miss. And that's because Paul uses a word for know in the Greek text that means to see or perceive or experience something with your own eyes. This is important because the apostle is not saying, he's, he's not saying, hey y'all, what I'm about to tell you, you already know in your head, intellectually or theoretically. He's not saying that. Instead, I would paraphrase it this way. I think what he's trying to say with, and we know, is this. You guys know this, what I'm going to say next, because you have in fact seen it with your own eyes. That's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, you guys know with your own eyes and through personal experience, what I'm going to tell you next. Well, what's that? That for those who love God, He works all things together for good. Now, let's take that next phrase, for those who love God. That's important too. We don't want to overlook that as we work our way through the verse. It's an important qualifier, or some would call it a statement of distinction. It reminds us that God reserves special privileges and promises for those who are willing to do what it takes to become one of His children. And that is simply the gospel. It's being willing to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and then follow Him the rest of your life. That, that's it. That's what you have to do, as simply as I can state it from the Scriptures, in order to become a child of God, to be forgiven for your sins, and to have eternal salvation. Now, another way that I could take this phrase, for those who love God, and paraphrase it would be this. For those who love God, it shows us that God does not extend 
the privileges of knowing him to those who don't know him. He doesn't do that. So if you want the benefits of knowing God, you have to know God on his terms, which is through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the world has tried to steal this doctrine in many different ways. The two most common ones I hear, and you probably have heard them too, is they, they refer to things like serendipity, or they say phrases like, well, I believe all things happen for a reason. That's, that's the world's way of saying, I want to do my best to believe there's a God. I'm not sure there's a God, but I think there's somebody up there putting pieces together so they work together for good. But don't be fooled. Unbelievers do not, they do not get to claim this promise here in Romans 8.28. Next, notice Paul then says, all things. So he gives the scope of God's working here, the scope. It means there is nothing, nothing in our lives beyond the purview of our sovereign God. So this includes where you were born, what family you were born into, where you went to school, who you marry, how many children you have, what those children look like or how they behave and turn out. Um, where you, whether you have poor health or good health, where you work, whether you've got a mean boss or a good boss, marriage struggles, financial problems, unemployment, all of that falls into all things. All these things are under God's sovereign control, and he's able to use them and work them together for good. So Paul is making it clear that there's nothing that's off limits or disqualified from God using or turning around to use it for good in our lives. Nothing. Notice then next, the next key phrase in, in verse 28 is work together. The Greek word for work that he uses here is, it's a very interesting word. It's, it's the Greek word synergeo. And it means to work together, to partner or put together in such a way that they, they put forth power. So uh, to partner or put forth power together, it's another way to say it. It's the same word from which we get the word synergy, the English word synergy. Synergeo in the Greek, we get synergy from that in the English. In this verse and in other places in the, in the New Testament, uh, synergeo was used to describe the working together of individual parts to form a greater whole. It means, for example, that a single season or event in our lives may not look good in the moment, but, but when that single event or circumstance or season in our lives is inserted into the entire pie of what God is doing over our entire lives, it works for good. It will work for good. He will use it for good. Paul even uses what Greek scholars call an active voice present tense of synergeo here in verse 28 to reemphasize or to emphasize, excuse me, the fact that God's work is ongoing and a continual activity. 
therefore, that means when you take synergeo, the Greek word for work, and you take the text, the tense that he uses, it means that the Lord hasn't waited to start working in our lives. He already is, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It also means he won't stop working in our lives because he always will be. Thus, verse 28 not only means all things, it also means all the time. And that's important because it means that like a five-star chef, the Lord is able to take what appears to be random ingredients, random events in our lives that we would consider useless ingredients. He's able to mix them all together in a bowl, add the seasoning of his divine power and his unlimited love, stir them up, and bring good out of them. He's able to do that, and unlike any, no one else can. He's able to produce a gourmet meal from all these random ingredients that we would think, oh, that's worthless, or that point in my life was worthless, and that really hurt right there. That was painful. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. I'm going to use that, and I'm going to use this, and I'm going to use that right there, and I'm going to put them in this bowl. I'm going to mix it up together, and I'm going to serve a gourmet meal, working all things together for good. So this is why I like to define God's sovereignty as this. It is his loving care for his creation through the complete control of the universe for his glory and our good. Or another way to say it is God's sovereignty is his hand on the steering wheel of time, making sure that his plans are fulfilled in this world. Next, look back at the text with me in verse 28. He says, God works all things together for good. Here's, let me just be honest with you here. This is where I think the rub comes in with us and the Lord and Romans 8.28. Let me just lay it out there. Let's just get real here. We are all in favor of God working all things for good in our lives so long as he gets our approval first, and we get to define the good. I mean, isn't that, isn't that how you think about it? I know I do. Let's just be real here. Come on. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. God does the work, and God defines the good. And that's where the rub is, I think, in our relationship with Him. And I think that's where we struggle and we have anxiety and fear and disappointment and all these things that we struggle with in our relationship with the Lord. We want Him to get our approval and we want Him to work good the way we see good. What we would think is good. Good in our eyes. Keeping us comfortable, happy, answering the prayers that we ask Him to answer the way we would want them answered. But good, in the context here of verse 29, in God's eyes, it's whatever He deems necessary to conform you and I to the image of His Son. So let me clarify uh, what this means here. Clarify, I want to clarify what all things means, 
working for good. First of all, it does not mean it does not mean all things will seem good to you. Nor does it mean God causes all things to happen in our lives. He allows or causes things to happen. It also doesn't mean God condones or causes sin. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, and, we, and, and when I talk about God working all things together for good, He's, he's not always going to do things that we think are good. He, he's not causing all things to happen, and He's not causing sin or condoning sin. Here's what it does mean, though. It means God uses even bad things for good in our lives. He also is able to work through our decisions, the decisions of other people and other circumstances for good. And he is able to use our sin, the sins of others, the work of Satan and natural evil and all sorts of other types of suffering in our lives for good. He's able to use those things and redeem them so that they work together for good. Now, I want to let's pause the video here for a minute, and I'd like you to talk about the first discussion question that's on your outline. You see it there, and it's, it's simply this. What are some bad things you've read about in the Bible that God turned into good? What are some bad things that you've read about in the Bible or can remember from your Bible reading that God turned into good. Talk about that with uh, your friends or your family, or if you're by yourself, think about that for a minute. Pause the video, and then I'll be waiting for you when you come back, and uh, I'll share some answers that I came up with. Now, don't cheat, though. Do not cheat. you got to come up with some answers first, okay? So no skipping ahead. And then I'd look forward to hearing what you think the answer to the question would be. You can email me or text me. Okay, pause the video. We'll be right back. Okay, did you come up with some good answers? Here's a few that came to my mind. The first one, if I, if you know, if we were doing that old uh, TV game show, Family Feud, and I was like the host, and I was survey says, you know, like they always would say, here's what I think the top-rated answer would be, and it's simply the gospel. In the gospel, we see God working all things for good, and that it was bad that His Son, Jesus Christ, suffered unjustly and died like a criminal on the cross, even though he was innocent. He died on the cross for the sins of sinners so we could be justified. So you've got the unjust death of the Son creating justification for repentant sinners. Another example, in the New Testament. The New Testament letters that the Apostle Paul wrote a total of five of them, five of the New Testament letters he wrote, he wrote during two incarcerations when he was in prison. Meaning, what initially appeared to be bad, that Paul was locked up, uh, chained to a, a guard, a Roman guard, not able to go out and preach, not able to go visit churches and plant more churches, it seemed bad. However, the Lord worked it together for good because it tied Paul down and made him write a significant chunk of the New Testament, letters that we've benefited from today. 
such as Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, and Philemon, and then 2 Timothy, his last letter. All those were written while Paul was sitting in prison. Uh, Another person, David. When I think about King David's life, God worked for good in his life as well. He was pursued and persecuted by King Saul for several years before he actually became king. And as a result, David learned humility that he would need when he eventually became king. And David wrote several chapters in the book of Psalms, prayers, where he's crying out to God, but also some worship songs. As a result of that season in his life, where he was suffering badly from Saul. Uh, Moses, another example. Moses was born a Hebrew, but adopted into Pharaoh's household. And through that household, he received the best education and leadership training in the world at the time. And God used all that in Moses' first 40 years growing up in an Egyptian household so that Moses could be the great leader he would need to be when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Another one, last one that came to my mind, and I'm sure there's plenty others we could come up with, but Peter. You remember Peter? He's the one that someone once said had peppermint socks because he kept putting his foot in his mouth. Well, Peter, remember when he told Jesus, I will never deny you ever. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you will. And he did. Peter was ambitious. He was passionate, but he was also proud. But he got humbled when he denied Christ the morning after Jesus had been crucified, and he denied him three times. But thankfully, the Lord restored him and forgave him for that. And I think that taught Peter the humility he would need to write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves with humility, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you. Is that? I don't know if Peter could have wrote those words if he hadn't failed and denied Christ three times like he said he would never do. Well, be encouraged by this simple truth, this simple fact. I I want you to take this away and get this. So I'm going to say this succinctly as I can. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, God is always working all things for good in your life. I'm going to say it again. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, God is always working all things for good in your life. Now, here's the second doctrine that we can glean from Romans 8, 28 and 29 that Paul kind of subtly inserts there. And that is, letter B on your outline, the doctrine of progressive sanctification. The doctrine of progressive sanctification. Paul writes in verse 29 that God's purpose in working all things together for good is so that those he foreknew and predestined could be conformed to the image of his son. Now, the word for conformed, it's an interesting word in the Greek text. Uh, It's a word that means to be fashioned or shaped into the same form as another, sort of like making a copy, but not quite. 
um, the translation, I would translate it like this. Another way we could say it is, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Father's ultimate, ultimate goal in your life is to make you look more like His Son. It's not, it's not keeping us comfortable. His ultimate goal is not fulfilling our dreams. It's not answering all our prayers. It's not making us happy. No, according to verse 29, the Father's ultimate goal is to make us look more like His Son. Now, the process by which He does this is called progressive sanctification. It's a term that theologians use to refer to how God works in the life of the believer to sanctify them or to make them holy like His Son. Now, let's pause the video again here for another minute. And I'd like you to talk about the next discussion question in your handout. And it's, it's simply this. What do you think it means to become or be like Jesus? What do you think it means? What is... And I want to encourage you to think about things in God's Word. What does it mean to be or become like Jesus? Talk about that for a minute, and I'll be right back. All right, welcome back. I hope you came up with some good answers. I'm sure you did. Here's a couple that came to my mind. When, I, when we think about what does it mean to become like Jesus, what, what could God be up to if He's working all things together for good to conform us into the image of His Son? What's that mean? Well, in a general sense, I think it means so that we would think and feel and act like Jesus did the longer we walk with Him. Um, I think it also means to experience some of the things that Jesus experienced, positive and negative. And I think it also means to represent Jesus well. To become like Him means to represent Him well. Because the, the actual name Christian, the word Christian, it, it means little Christ. It means we are, we are like Him or so identified with Him that, that we look like Him, not in physical appearance, but in character, in how we think and how we feel. Or more specifically, it reminds me of what Paul said in Ephesians 5.1, that we should be imitators of God. That, that, that should be the goal that we shoot for in our lives as Christ followers, is to be more like Christ. I was thinking about this earlier today. You know, if I was to come to your house with a camera and a microphone and to interview you for, a, let's say, a TV show or a video. And let's say if I was to ask you, do you want to become like Jesus? I think the response I would get from most of you is, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, the Bible talks about that. But then if I were to ask this follow-up question, are you willing to suffer pain and loss and be mocked and lonely, and betrayed, and rejected, maybe crucified, just like Jesus was, so that you can become like Him? I think if I was to ask that follow-up question, uh, at least here's how I would respond. I think, I think most of us would go, um, 
isn't there another way? Can we just skip that part? I mean, I want to be like Jesus, don't get me wrong, but can we just skip that part? How about I be like Jesus on the good days that he had? Or some of you might shut the door in my face as I stand on your front porch and say, uh, I got to go. <laughs> no more questions, you know. Uh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. This is getting uncomfortable. But here's the thing. When we keep Romans 8.28 in its context and we keep it together with verse 29 like it's supposed to be, we get this simple principle. And it's this. God is always working all things for good to make us more like Christ. See, we like the first part, don't we? God is always working all things for good. Okay, just stop right there. I like that. I like that part. But the rest of the verse, verse 29, he's working all things to good to make us more like Christ. Now, I know what you might be thinking. How is God working all things together for good, making me more like Christ? Good. How is that good? Well, it's good because becoming more like Christ is the only way we can have a better life here on earth. It's the only way we can be prepared for heaven. It's the only way that we can walk closer with the Lord, which is what He wants. And it's the only way we can be used by Him to change lives. Because the Lord uses people who are walking closely and becoming like His Son. Any other option is a bad option. Because becoming more like ourselves or becoming more like someone else, maybe some celebrity or athlete that we admire, gets us into trouble with God again. And that's because being like ourselves or trying to be like someone else is what got us in trouble with God in the first place. It's called rebellion. It's called sin. It's, it's called being self-centered or selfish. So the sanctification process, it is painful at times. There are times where the Lord may want you or I to suffer things that Jesus suffered so we can become more like Him and identify with Him more. We may have to experience loss, rejection, betrayal, physical suffering, or being rejected by the world so that we understand better what it means to become like Christ. And so we understand the scriptures that we read better than we do today. The sanctification process is painful at times, but God is wholeheartedly committed to it because He sees the infinite and eternal value in it. It's, it's priceless to Him. And so He does it, even when we don't want Him to sanctify us. He still does it. Now, the problem I think we have with Romans 8.28, again, just being totally transparent and honest here, we're just keeping it real. If we're honest, we want God's sovereignty to work for our good, but we don't want to be sanctified like verse 29 says. We, we really would rather not have that. So just, Lord, can I just have verse 28? I really don't want verse 29. However... We need to do good theology here. And good Bible interpretation and good theology requires us 
to do this. We cannot claim the promise of all things working together for good unless we're willing to be conformed into Christ's image. It's true. It's just the truth right out of the text. And I, I don't like it, honestly, but that's what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. We cannot claim the promise of all things working for good unless we're willing to be conformed into Christ's image. Well, how do we apply this? How do we apply this text, these verses 8, 28 and 29, and the doctrine of God's sovereignty and progressive sanctification? What do we do with this now more practically? Well, here's, here's two application questions I want to encourage you to discuss that are on your handout. And that is, what are some bad things in the past, in your past, you've seen God turn into good? What are some bad things? Um, it could be a foolish or sinful decision. Maybe it's a severe illness or injury or car accident. Maybe it was a financial loss or a painful relationship loss, such as um, a divorce, a betrayal, death of a loved one. Or maybe it's having to move away from friends or family because of a job relocation or to go to another school that you would rather not go to instead of the one you wanted to go to. How has God used some bad things in your past and turned them into good? I want you to think about that and just write a couple of them down on your, on your handout and share them with whoever you're watching this video with and then thank the Lord for redeeming those things. Here's the second, number two, second application question. I'd like you to think about what are some good things you can see God doing in your life during this coronavirus pandemic? What are some good things you can see God doing in your life through this coronavirus pandemic? Like, how is He growing your faith, for example? Or how is He drawing you closer to Him? How is He shaping your character? Uh, what's He working on in you during this statewide shutdown for the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, maybe it's, maybe you're learning that having more solitude in your life is important so you can think and pray and spend more time with the Lord. Having, having quietness in your life so you can listen to the Lord. Or maybe it's simplicity. He's teaching you the value of simplicity and that's having more room in your calendar and fewer withdrawals from your checking account or eating out less so you can eat home more and eat healthier. Maybe it's quality time with family that you need to spend more quality time with your family. Or perhaps the Lord is trying to teach you perspective, being able to step back from your life so you can evaluate it and then make some tweaks and changes on what's important and what's not as important. Or perhaps something else, another idea on how to answer this question is perhaps the Lord's just teaching you thankfulness. Maybe the Lord had to strip away some things from your life for a season here this spring during this pandemic so that you could see some things you were taking for granted and become thankful for them. And that's, that's something we all do. It's easy to do. 
But regardless, I want to encourage you to write down your answers to number two as well. What are some good things you can see God doing in your life through this coronavirus pandemic? Write a couple of them down on your handout. Share them with whoever you're watching the video with. And then I want to ask you to thank the Lord for those things too. And ask the Lord to complete the good work that He started in you, to quote Philippians. Well, before we wrap things up, I want to leave you with this quote. It's, it's a quote of, from one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, and it has encouraged me many times when I've been wondering, what on earth are you doing, Lord? And it's, it's this. It comes from Tozer's book, The Crucified Life. He says this, If we understand that everything happening to us is to make us more Christ-like, it will solve a great deal of anxiety in our lives. I hope that quote encourages you just as much as it's encouraged me. And before we close, I just want to remind you again, don't waste, don't waste this quarantine. Don't waste your time at home. Because the worst thing you could do is come out of this quarantine when our government lets us go back out in public or go back to work. The worst thing you could do is come out of it and not have learned anything and not changed anything in your walk with the Lord. But the best thing you could do is to come out of this quarantine and this shutdown with a deeper, more intimate, more obedient relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where you could look back on this season in the spring of 2020 and say, man, that was hard. That, that, that time back there, that was hard. But man, I'm thankful for that season because I grew in my walk with the Lord and I got serious about Jesus during that time. I did not waste that time. I made the most of it. I want to encourage you and urge you to do that. Well, Thank you again to those of you who have continued to financially support the ministry of Vanguard. If you're able to do that, I want to encourage you to go to our website, www.vanguardbible.org, and then go to the Give page where we've got giving options on that page for you. And then I hope you have a great, blessed week. I'll be right back here next week opening the Scriptures with you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.